Good afternoon. Why December 25th? Enculturating Christmas in the early church. That's what we're going to discuss today. Today, there is a war on Christmas. For decades now, it seems that there has been a slow, steady, and subtle shift in the popular culture to secularize and de-Christianize this religious celebration. There is more talk today of Santa Claus in his workshop than of the sleeping Christ in the creche. More songs of reindeer pulling the sleigh than the donkey carrying the virgin. More excitement over Frosty the snowman appearing to the children than the heavenly host appearing to the shepherds. Now, of course, all such a-religious Christmas stories are oftentimes harmless enough. One need not become puritanical in this respect. For example, Santa Claus can be reappropriated and re-anchored in his original historical form as the great Saint Nicholas of Myra who, according to pious legend, slapped the heretic Arius in the face. <laughs> However, the danger is when these holiday myths supersede the supernatural mystery, when the very reason for the season is overlooked, neglected, or deliberately ostracized, this gives Christians great concern, even consternation. Keep Christ in Christmas, so the popular expression goes. And yet there is another war that has been waged on Christmas. This one is far older, however, and has not been waged by the secularist, but by the Christian. Beginning at the time of the Reformation, there was an accusation that Christmas was not a legitimate liturgical feast. Rather, it was the appropriation of a pagan holiday by the Roman Catholic Church, which throughout its history has all too often made concessions to heathenism. The well-known Scottish reformer and founder of the Presbyterian Church, John Knox, listed Christmas among the inventions of the papist. Concerning such inventions, he writes, because in God's scriptures they neither have commandment nor assurance, we judge them utterly to be abolished from this realm, affirming further that the obstinate maintainers and teachers of such abominations ought not to escape the punishment of the civil magistrate. Accordingly, Christmas was rejected in Scotland's first book of discipline in 1561. The Puritan movement in England likewise had a great antipathy towards the holiday. The Puritan Philip Stubbs, in his An Anatomy of Abuses of 1583, wrote that more mischief is that time committed than in all the years beside. What masking and mumming, whereby robbery, whoredom, murder, and whatnot is committed. What dicing and carding, what eating and drinking, what banqueting and feasting is then used more than in all the years besides to the great dishonor of God and impoverishment of the realm, end quote. Puritans simply hated the feast. In fact, the celebration of Christmas even became part of their platform during the English Civil War, during which the Holy Day was officially banned in 1647. This war on Christmas even spread to the colonies, where Christmas was outlawed in Massachusetts in 1659. Classes were not canceled on December 25th, and any student staying home to celebrate Christmas was severely punished. This Puritan mindset presents present even today in certain religious sects which have inherited it, rejects Christmas on December 25th as something that is neither biblically or theologically justified nor legitimately grounded in sound Christian tradition. Rather, it is pagan and papist. In what follows, we would like to engage such claims through an exploration of the historical origins of Christmas. When did the church start celebrating the birth of Christ? Did it really originate from a pagan feast? Why was December 25th finally settled upon as the date of the nativity? 
These are questions which we hope, at the very least, to shed some light on. To begin, let us state with what are the generally accepted facts. First of all, the church in the first few centuries does not mention the celebration of the birth of Christ, at least not in any of the documents we possess. It is not recorded in the earliest fathers, such as Ignatius, Clement, Polycarp, Justin, and Irenaeus. In fact, the celebration of a birthday is something that seems to be looked down upon. Origin of Alexandria dismisses birthdays as pagan. The great exegete of scripture that he is, Origen notes that there are only two people who have birthday celebrations in the Bible, Pharaoh and Herod. Not good exemplars. Therefore, good Christians, he argues, should not celebrate such anniversaries, but rather follow the example of Job and Jeremiah, who cursed the day of their birth. <laughs> Indeed, if a Christian is to celebrate his birthday, this should be his birthday into eternal life. That is, the day of his martyrdom. In fact, patristic literature often refers to the anniversary of martyrs as their birthday. This view seems to continue until perhaps the fourth century. Now, the fourth century was a time of great change for Christianity. Under emperors Constantine and Theodosius, the church went from being a persecuted religious group within the empire to the protected and privileged religion of the empire. The persecutors became the converts, martyrs were replaced by monastics, and the philosopher gave way to the theologian. Also at this time, orthodoxy overcame heresy as the first ecumenical councils of Nicaea and Constantinople were held, and the divinity of the Son and the Spirit were enshrined in the Creed. Furthermore, with Athanasius, the Cappadocians, Ambrose, Chrysostom, Hilary, Ephraim, Jerome, and the young Augustine, the golden age of patristic literature dawned. If the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, then the fourth century shows us the wonderful flower which had germinated from that seed. It is in the midst of this era of transition that there emerged the wide acceptance of two dates for the celebration of Christmas, one on December 25th, the other January 6th, those dates which today we designate as the Nativity and Epiphany. Why this change of outlook? How did this come to be? With this, we come to the heart of the controversy, especially for liturgical historians of the early church. Basically, there are two competing theories as to how and why the church settled on the date of December 25th. The first of these is the so-called history of religions theory. Of the two theories, this one is by far the more widespread, both in academic circles and popular opinion, and resonates with the Puritan rejection of Christmas. The history of religions theory argues that December 25th was chosen by the early church to replace the pagan feast of Sol Invictus, the deity whose name means the unconquerable sun. Worship of the sun had grown alongside the growth of the early church, becoming quite popular at that time. At different times, the various gods of the pantheon were even identified with the sun, including Bacchus, Mars, Mercury, Hercules, Saturn, Jupiter, and of course, Apollo. Yet in the third and fourth centuries, Sol had become, for many pagans, the principal deity. Pivotal was the elevation of Sol by the Roman Emperor Aurelian in the year 274. With this, Sol became the supreme god in the pantheon, and his cult was established to replace all other cults. A new magnificent temple was to be built in his honor, and games were to be held annually. And when would the great feast day of Sol be celebrated? Actually, there were several. 
However, the feast of his birthday was to be held on the winter solstice, which according to the Julian calendar was held on December 25th. This birthday of Sol is documented in the famous chronograph of 354, which records Natalis Invicti for the day of December 25th. But this is not the only festivity recorded on this date. Elsewhere in the chronograph, one finds written Natus Christus in Bethlehem Judei. Christ was born in Bethlehem of Judea. In fact, according to the history of religions theory, this is the first undisputed reference to the birth of Christ being celebrated on December 25th. Now, as this is the first recorded reference to Christmas, yet the Feast of Sol was allegedly inaugurated by Aurelian in the previous century, in light of this evidence, proponents of this theory argue that the church selected this date to combat the celebration of the pagan feast. As a shrewd tactic of inculturation, early Christians replaced the great god of the pantheon with he who came to destroy the gods of the pantheon. For if the populace converts from paganism to Christianity, there will be a perennial temptation to return to the seduction of the pagan festivals. Therefore, the church must replace the birth of the sun god with the birth of the son of God. Nature abhors a vacuum is a saying which apparently the early church endorsed. In any event, according to this mode of thinking, the history of religions theories argues that this is why the church selected December 25th. This theory is not without its merits. And within the school of thought, there are many variations and nuances. At this point, we might observe that most Catholics would take little issue with this theory. For the church seeks not only to convert individuals, but also transform cultures. Therefore, the history of evangelization bears witness to a twofold baptism, the spiritual death and rebirth of the individual believer, as well as the spiritual death and rebirth of the collective culture. For example, the Catholic imagination delights in the fact that today, when one visits the Pantheon in Rome, one sees how this once pagan temple is now a Catholic church dedicated to St. Mary of the Martyrs. How appropriate. The martyrs refused to offer incense to the gods of the Pantheon and died for their refusal. Yet now these gods are dead and dethroned, and the martyrs have taken their place, commemorated in this magnificent basilica. Many other examples could be cited here. In any case, the reclamation of pagan monuments and celebrations for Christ was enshrined by the great doctor of the church, St. Gregory the Great. In a letter addressing the Benedictine efforts to evangelize pagan England, the Holy Father states the following, But when Almighty God shall have brought you to our most reverend brother, the Bishop Augustine, tell him that I have long been considering with myself about the case of the Angli, to wit, that the temples of the idols in that nation should not be destroyed, but that the idols themselves that are in them should be. Let blessed water be prepared and sprinkled in these temples and altars, constructed and relics deposited, since if these same temples are well built, it is needful that they should be transferred from the worship of idols to the service of the true God. And since they are wont to kill many oxen and sacrifice to demons, they should have also some solemnity of this kind in a changed form, so that on the day of dedication or on the anniversaries of the holy martyrs whose relics are deposited there, they may celebrate the solemnity with religious feasts nor let them any longer sacrifice animals to devils, but slay animals to the praise of God for their own eating and return thanks to the giver for all their fullness." End quote. 
As the history of Christian missions bears witness, the church has often followed the advice of this wise pontiff. From a Catholic point of view, therefore, the replacement of Sol Invictus with Christus Victor is no great stumbling block. In fact, it is not only not a stumbling block for Catholics, it could be one of the greatest triumphs of enculturation in the history of the church. And here is where the history of religion theory, if constructed in its narrow, strict, one might say puritanical form, shows a deep misunderstanding of how and why the church would be in good standing with its own tradition to appropriate this specific feast. In order to understand this, one must grasp what might be called solar Christology. That is the image of Christ as the sun, S-U-N, not S-O-N. Such Christology emphasizes the correspondence between, on the one hand, how the sun functions in the cosmos, that is, reigning over the heavens, serving as the center around which all things revolve, giving life and warmth to all creatures, etc. And on the other hand, how this reflects the deeper mystery and transcendent reality of Christ in the cosmos, reigning as the king of heaven, living as the center of the spiritual world, and radiating his life-giving grace to all those who walk in his presence. Now, where does this correlation between Christ and the Son find its origin? Is this just an adoption of a pagan image of Helios or Sol or Apollo that was baptized by the early church and became enculturated in the Greco-Roman world? The answer is no. Rather, it is biblical, or at least in its early forms, and in fact is found in the, in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Turning first to the Hebrew Scriptures, the image is hinted at in the Psalms. When describing the heavens in Psalm 19, David writes, In them he has sent a tent for the sun, which comes forth like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hid from its heat. Tent, bridegroom, strong man, here are many Christological images. For the word will become flesh and pitch his tent among us. He is called the bridegroom by John the Baptist. And he is stronger than the strong man that is Satan, binding him and plundering his house. Even more explicit is the well-known passage from the prophet Malachi, the last prophet before John the Baptist. Malachi declares, Quote, for behold, the day comes, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, that is S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go forth leaping like calves from the stall. The Son of Righteousness. The fathers read this as a prophecy of Christ. Turning to the New Testament, we also see solar imagery used to describe Christ. In the Canticle of Zechariah, he praises God, saying, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise, sometimes translated dayspring, shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Elsewhere in the Gospels, we see that the death of Christ is marked by the blackening of the sun. In a similar vein, Mark describes that on the morning of the resurrection, they went to the tomb, quote, when the sun had risen, end quote. In the book of Revelation, John records the following, I, Jesus, 
have sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. To these passages, one could add all the descriptions of Christ as the light of the world in the Gospel of John. In his prologue, he writes, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. Later in the same gospel, Christ declares, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In his exhortation to the early churches, Paul likewise employs this imagery. Writing to the Ephesians, the apostle states, For once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. To the Thessalonians, he declares, For you are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness, since we belong to the day. Let us be sober. The light, the day, the sun, these are the biblical metaphors used to describe the mystery of the incarnation redemption. With this in mind, let us turn to the early church. Mindful of all such scriptural descriptors, the early Christians began to note remarkable parallels between the Son and Christ. First of all, both share the same day of the week. As we all know, Christians from the beginning have worshipped God on the first day of the week, the day of the resurrection, what they very early on called the Lord's Day. But in the pagan culture, there had been a long custom of designating the seven days of the week after the seven planets, originating in Chaldean and Egyptian astrology. For the Mediterranean world, this day was entitled, in Greek, Hemeratu Heliou, or in the Latin, Dia Solis, both of which meant Day of the Sun, or simply Sunday. For early Christians, this meant that the prophesied Son of Righteousness from Malachi resurrected on the actual Day of the Sun. The Sun's Day and the Lord's Day remarkably coincided. The early Christians were fascinated by this parallel. Concerning this, Hugo Rahner writes, Deep down, the Christians felt that the coinciding of the days of the resurrection with that of Helios was not coincidence at all, but that providence in its profound wisdom had had a hand in this. As St. Jerome writes, But the Lord's day, the day of resurrection, the day of Christians, is our own. And if the heathen calls it dies solis, we are quite ready to accept this description too. For on this day, the light appeared, and on this day, the sun of righteousness shone forth. In addition to this weekly parallel, there was also the annual one, for it was believed that Christ had died on the spring equinox, at the point wherein the sun returned to its original location and would begin to rise and ascend to its summer zenith. This too seemed to parallel the life of Christ, whose paschal mystery of death, resurrection, and ascension up into heaven began on this day. To these weekly and annual parallels, there was still added the daily parallel of the course of the sun. According to the ancient pagan mindset, the sun sets in the west, goes down into the netherworld, and gloriously rises anew the following day. Therefore, the ancients saw the west as the location of the gates of Hades. The west was the symbol of death, darkness, and demonic power similarly to how we on the East Coast might think of Hollywood. <laughs> the East, on the other hand, was associated with light and rebirth. This solar symbolism, too, seemed to reflect the Paschal mystery. 
For Christ died, descended into the netherworld, and then rose again. Therefore, every day and every night for the Christians could serve as a reminder of Easter. As St. Athanasius explains, as the sun returns from the west to the east, so the Lord arose out of the depths of Hades to the heaven of heavens. Therefore, basing itself on biblical imagery, reading the book of nature, and engaging in theological reflection, early Christians could find in the sun a daily, weekly, and annual reflection of the mystery of redemption. With this understanding, we can see why the fathers would employ solar imagery. Melito of Sardis describes Christ as the only true Helios. Hilary of Portieres describes how the Logos is like the sun, ever ready to give light where the windows of the human soul are opened. St. Ambrose describes Christ as the true sun, who outshone the fallen gods of the old order. St. Jerome writes, in the mysteries we renounce him, that is Satan, who is in the west. Then, turning towards the east, we enter into covenant with the sun of righteousness and promise that we will serve him. With this Christian tradition understood, the appropriation of this feast by the early church is quite fascinating. At this point, this much is clear. If one is to follow the history of religions theory, the church would not have arbitrarily selected the displacement of Sol Invictus or done so simply for practical considerations. After all, why not choose the birth date of some other deity? No, they would have quite consciously chosen the birthday of the sun god because basing themselves on the prophecy of Malachi and other such biblical, historic, and cosmological parallels, they had declared Christ to be the son of righteousness and the light of the world who enlightens all men. Therefore, the replacement of the sun god with the son of God is not without foundation. Rather, it is an exercise of enculturation in line with the entire history of Christian evangelization. Therefore, given this theological background, the cultural adoption of Sol Invictus is quite compelling. That being acknowledged, the history of religion theory has been vehemently opposed by some scholars who have proposed an alternate theory. Now, before we turn to this alternate theory, let us first note some of the deficiencies which these scholars find in the history of religions theory. First of all, they claim it lacks historical evidence. While the chronograph of 354 does record the celebration of the birth of Sol Invictus on December 25th, the idea that this pagan feast inspired the selection of this day is not found in early Christian sources. There are no synodal records, no conciliar documents, and no patristic writings that describe any such interreligious or enculturating tactic on the part of the early church. In fact, the earliest testimony that is found to support this theory comes much much later in the 12th century. The Syrian bishop Dionysus Barsilabi, who died in 1171, wrote the following. The reason for which the fathers transferred the said solemnity from the 6th of January to the 25th of December is the following. It was the custom of the pagans to celebrate on this day of the 25th of December, the feast of the birth of the sun. Interestingly, this quote comes roughly 800 years after the chronograph and is the first extant witness to this theory. This is rather late. In addition to this lack of evidence, a second factor, which some scholars argue, is the weakness of the Feast of Sol Invictus itself on December 25th. While Sol had certainly gained a newfound prominence in the Pantheon, it is not clear how dominant this particular celebration was in the ancient culture. 
In fact, recent scholarship has argued against the designation of December 25th as the day on which Emperor Aurelian inaugurated his games. It is quite possible that these were instituted in an entirely different month of the year. Also, the records of this particular feast are meager. In his Fasti, Ovid mentions no such feast, but simply notes the winter solstice. Macrobius likewise fails to mention it. In fact, there is no explicit evidence of the Feast of Sol Invictus prior to the chronograph of 354. This has even led to the conjecture that the feast commemorating the birthday of the sun was actually established to counter the much earlier feast commemorating the birthday of Christ. It is not the church trying to supplant Sol, but the empire trying to supplant Christ. Furthermore, some scholars find it hard to believe that the church, which so despised religious syncretism and the incursion of pagan worship into Christian practice, would feel the need to designate this relatively recent feast as the Feast of Christmas without any historical backing or grounding within the Christian tradition. Third and finally, there is the witness of the church fathers. When reading their letters and homilies on Christmas, one does not get the sense that the selection of December 25th was recent or arbitrary. Augustine writes, quote, he was born according to tradition upon December 25th. Jerome in a Christmas homily states, we are not airing our opinion, but supporting tradition. John Chrysostom states that Christmas was kept at Rome from the beginning and by ancient tradition. Concerning Chrysostom and other fourth century fathers of the East who helped spread the feast, the great liturgical scholar Thomas Talley writes, that they, quote, were surely convinced that December 25th was in fact the historic date of Christ's birth, and they betray no awareness of any suggestion that the festival is derived from a pagan observance, end quote. To these fathers who wrote in the fourth century, one could add the witness of the earlier fathers who wrote in the second and third centuries, well before the chronograph of 354. To do so, however, brings us to our second popular theory surrounding the origins of Christmas. In contrast to the history of religions theory is the so-called computation theory. In recent years, it seems to be gaining more and more ground, with many of its advocates growing impatient with the continued hegemony of the rival history of religions theory. What then is the computation theory? The computation theory holds that December 25th was selected based on the calendrical speculation of theologians in the early church who were trying to ascertain the historical date on which Christ was born. Adherents of the computation theory have many different ways to advance their arguments and to present their evidence. Rather than surveying all these different presentations, we will simply put forward the basic evidence that one may find in this theory. First of all, these scholars point out that as early as the end of the second century, nearly 200 years before the chronograph, there was a growing interest in calculations, chronology, and calendars among Christians. Among the considered dates of speculation was the birth of Christ. Yet here, there was decidedly less information available to the church, much less for the birth of Christ than there was for his passion. The Gospels are a great example of this. They give many details concerning the timing of the passion, but the timing in the nativity narratives is left open to much speculation. Accordingly, the calculation of the Christmas date in the early church oftentimes seems to have begun not with the birth of Christ, but with the more certain knowledge of his death. 
Therefore, let us begin with the early Christian dating of the death of Christ. Now, following the account in John's Gospel, the early church held that the Passion of Christ took place on the 14th of Nisan. This was the day of sacrificing the Passover lambs, according to the book of Exodus. Now, the Jews had a lunar calendar, that is, a calendar based on the monthly cycles of the moon. However, the Julian calendar, that is, the calendar used throughout the Roman Empire, was a solar calendar, basing itself on the cycles of the sun. Since the solar and the lunar calendars do not correspond perfectly, the question would naturally arise as to what date in the solar calendar corresponded with the 14th of Nisan when Jesus died. One common choice was March 25th. One of the earliest calculations comes from Tertullian in his treatise against the Jews, circa 197. Quote, and the suffering of the Christ was accomplished within the time of the 70 weeks under Tiberius Caesar in the month of March at the time of the Passover on the eighth day before the calends of April, end quote. The eighth day before the calends of April is March 25th. Hippolytus of Rome, a contemporary of Tertullian, in his canon, written in 222, likewise places the date of Christ's Passion on Friday, March 25th. The selection of this date is very significant. First of all, March 25th was the spring equinox, according to the Roman calendar, the day on which the sun was in the middle of its course. And accordingly, the light of day and the darkness of night were completely balanced and equal. Secondly, and more importantly, according to certain second century Jews, March 25th corresponded to the first day of creation. According to Genesis, on this day, God created the light and the darkness and separated the two, calling one day and the other night. For certain Jews, this separation of light and darkness was interpreted as one of perfect balance, symmetry, and proportion, taking place in the springtime of life, hence March 25th, the spring equinox. This belief of March 25th as the first day of creation is likewise found in the Chronographiae of Julius Africanus, a Christian author who was a contemporary of Tertullian and Hippolytus. With this understood, let us turn to the second core belief in this calculation, namely that Christ was conceived and died on the same day. Such a chronological parallelism is attested to in several early Christian sources. This calendrical correspondence between Christ's conception and crucifixion would go on to be a source of great theological reflection. Thus, St. Augustine in his De Trinitate writes as follows, for he, Jesus, is believed to have been conceived on the 25th of March, upon which day he also suffered. So the womb of the virgin in which he was conceived, where no one of mortals was begotten, corresponds to the new grave in which he was buried, wherein was never man laid, neither before him nor since." End quote. A beautiful theological parallel. But this may lead us wondering, where do the church fathers get this idea? While there is much that could be speculated here, we do receive some illumination on this question when we turn again to the Jewish tradition. Here one finds the concept of integral years. That is the idea that the patriarchs and the great figures of the Old Testament lived a complete cycle of years. For example, when Genesis states, so all the days of Adam live, sorry, so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died, 
This means that he lived exactly 930 years without any additional month or days. In other words, the great Jewish heroes died on the very day of their birth, making their birth date and their death date the same. Now, this is obviously not the same as what we are saying for Christ, for we are describing the shared date of his death and his conception, not his birth. That being said, the concept of integral years does seem to be at play. If this is the case, why would there be a shift from the birth to the conception? Here, one can only speculate. However, other aspects of Jewish tradition could be helpful when considered. First of all, according to Jewish tradition, creation and redemption were to take place on, at the same time of year. The Babylonian Talmud describes a discussion between two rabbis, both of whom describe creation and redemption taking place in the same month, even on the exact same day. One of these rabbis, perhaps not unsurprisingly, designates the month of Nisan as having the day in which this will take place. With this link between creation and redemption taking place on the same day, it makes sense why the theological reflection of Christians would designate March 25th as the date of the conception of Christ. For as the first Adam was formed in the virgin soil in the month of Nisan, so the new Adam was formed in the virgin womb in the same month. Creation and redemption are linked through the genesis of the two Adams. Furthermore, if one is following this correspondence between creation and redemption, and if Christians already held that Christ had died on March 25th, one could also understand the desire to have this date match with his conception. For this means that the very day the Word became flesh in obedience to the Father is the same day the Word handed over the same flesh as a sacrificial self-gift, again in obedience to the Father. Whatever the case may be, let us return to the computation. Now, if Christ was conceived on March 25th, the same day as his death, this would mean that he would be born nine months later, that is, December 25th. According to the computation theory, this seems to be how the early church chose this date as the birth of Christ, not because of Sol Invictus, but based on their own calculations. The date of Christmas was determined as December 25th, based on the dating of the Annunciation to March 25th, which in turn was based on the Passion being dated to March 25th, the solar equivalent to the lunar date of Nisan 14, recorded in Exodus and John's Gospel. To bolster this claim of December 25th, computation theorists actually turn to the other alternate date for the Nativity in the early church, namely January 6th. Here is where the theory really gets interesting. Now, January 6th, we commonly think of as Epiphany. However, it was originally the Christmas date for the Christians in the East. In fact, even to this day, it is celebrated by the Armenian church as Christmas. In any case, in the calendar used by the Greeks, the 14th of Nisan did not correspond with March 25th, as the North African Tertullian and the Roman Hippolytus had designated it. Rather, it designated April 6th as the solar equivalent. Fascinatingly, if we advance this date to the conception of, take it as a conception of Christ and advance it nine months later, we get January 6th, the exact date on which the East decided to celebrate Christmas. Concerning this, Andrew McGowan argues, thus we have Christians in two parts of the world calculating Jesus' birth on the basis of his death and conception taking place on the same day, March 25th or April 6th, and coming up with two close but different results. December 25th and January 6th. 
In addition to this calculation of the birth of Christ based on the date of his passion conception, there is also another computation that was used in the early church. Perhaps it is distinct or perhaps it is related. For this, let us look at the early Christian treatise entitled, quote, On the Solstice and Equinox Conception of the Birth of Our Lord Jesus Christ and John the Baptist, dated to the fourth or quite possibly the third century. This work, it, in this work, it anchors the dating not in the passion of the Christ, but rather the birth of John. According to this treatise, Zechariah was serving in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles, which would place the conception of John the Baptist on September 24th, the fall equinox. The treatise argues that following Luke's gospel, the Annunciation took place when Elizabeth was six months in her pregnancy. Therefore, Christ was conceived on the spring equinox, that is, March 25th. If this is the case, it likewise follows that John was born on June 24th, the summer solstice, and that Christ was born on December 25th, the winter solstice. Thus, all four stages of the solar calendar are accounted for through the birth and conception of the Messiah and the birth and conception of his forerunner, without apparently using the death date as the anchor, but rather the conception of John, another argument is given for the designation of December 25th. In fact, this latter rendering is particularly striking, for John is born at the summer solstice, the point at which the sun begins to get gradually lower and lower on the horizon, and its light becomes less and less until it reaches the winter solstice when Christ is born. As the ancient Christian document points out, this corresponds with what John said of himself in relationship with the coming of Christ. He must increase, but I must decrease. Furthermore, the selection of December 25th, or the winter solstice for the birth of Christ, seems likewise appropriate, for it is the time when the sun is at its lowest point in the entire year. This date would well reflect the humility and self-abasement of the Christ child born in poverty and cold in the darkness of a heathen world. Thus, we have the basic contours of the computation theory. Here, the driving force is not enculturation based on a Greco-Roman myth, but the Christian combination of calendrical speculation based on the Julian calendar and theological reflection based on the Jewish tradition. Perhaps a great example of the synthesis between faith and science. That being said, the computation theory does not yet offer a complete account. If one follows the anchoring of this date of the Passion and holds the influence of integral years from the Jews, it still needs to be demonstrated exactly how and why there was a shift from birth to conception. We offered some of our own speculation in this regard, but this is not the same as historic evidence. Or if one follows the historical anchoring of the conception of John, this assumes certain details which are not explicit or clear in the Gospel of Luke. For example, that Zechariah is ministering for the Feast of Tabernacles. However, all in all, it seems to offer a more compelling case than the history of religion's theory in its strict puritanical form. On a final note, it should be noted that these two theories, if they are granted a degree of flexibility, are actually not mutually exclusive. One could hold to both. What would this look like? It could be that the general time frame of the birth of Christ was an early Christian tradition handed down from the time of the apostles, perhaps from the Blessed Mother herself. Inspired by this tradition, 
The Church Fathers then could have developed the use of calendrical calculation and chronological speculation to, de to determine precisely in what year, in what month, and on what day this took place, just as they did for the solar calendar's equivalent of the Passion. Perhaps this is why they had the conviction that Christ was conceived and died on the same day, not from an adaptation of integral years from Jewish theology, but because they found it to be true according to their own computations of the calendar. Furthermore, given the biblical prophecies and metaphors of the sun, it is possible that God used this celestial orb to manifest the unfolding of his divine plan in the fullness of time. Does not Genesis teach us that the lights in the firmament have been established for signs and for seasons? Does not the psalmist cry out, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork? Did not a star guide the magi? Additionally, it could be that the good God mysteriously permitted the Romans to give special attention to the winter solstice as a time of anticipation and celebration of their God, knowing full well that it would only prepare and pave the way for the true feast of his son's birth, the son of righteousness, who would one day conquer the unconquerable one. As the Second Vatican Council taught concerning the mission of the church, quote, through her work, whatever good is in the minds and hearts of men, whatever good lies latent in the religious practices and cultures of diverse peoples, is not only saved from destruction, but is also cleansed, raised up, and perfected unto the glory of God, the confusion of the devil, and the happiness of man, end quote. Therefore, perhaps the real origins of Christmas, which even now continue to be a source of fierce debate among scholars, are some combination and synthesis of all of the above. In any case, whether Christ was born on precisely December 25th or not, this much is certain. The heathen world was as cold, bleak, and dark as the mid-December night until his light shone forth in a stable in Bethlehem. For long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Thank you. Now, I'm told we have time for questions, and if you ask a question, uh, I have to repeat the question for the online audience. So, are there any questions? Yes? It is, and actually it was after the Council of Nicaea that Constantine had it moved back to the 21st. So the Julian calendar that was inaugurated by Julius Caesar in like the 50 years before Christ basically got it wrong. Yeah. Yes? I, have, I mean, a lot of the computation seems to be very biased toward the Northern Hemisphere. Did any, have any of them considered if you lived in Australia, things would be quite different? Uh, generally speaking, no. So that gives a certain superiority to the northern hemisphere. Seems to, seems to. Yes. What about the, uh, the fact that the shepherds are in the fields by night, which is usually happening when the lambs are birthed, which is not happening in December? Okay, great question. So I forgot I'm supposed to repeat the questions. So he said, what about the detail that the lambs are actually out 
uh, in the wilderness, which is something, or in the fields rather, which is something that in winter wouldn't take place. Usually they would be corralled. So that is an argument that is used by people against the idea that it is December 25th. And by the way, a lot of the people who make the computation theory, they're not necessarily Christian apologists. They actually just think it's the correct, uh, the correct idea of how the church came to that date. They themselves may not even think that it took place on December 25th, so they actually separate it. Um, that being said, those who do argue, um, if they're holding to the whole equinox and solstice theory with John, the birth of John and the birth of Jesus, when it comes to Luke's account of the lambs being out there, there's actually a tradition that the shepherds at that time were the Levitical shepherds. So those who actually took care of the lambs in preparation for uh, the daily sacrifice of the lamb or even for the Passover. And evidently, those shepherds would journey down from Jerusalem to Bethlehem from November to March. So actually, is a, there's an argument against that saying, actually, even though, generally speaking, you did have corrals, these were incredibly poor uh, shepherds, and this was kind of part of the cycle of, of their life as Levitical shepherds. Which is all the more fascinating, because you imagine the angels appearing and saying, like, a savior is born. In other words, like, you don't have to sacrifice lambs anymore. So... What? Yes. Oh, that's great. Yeah, there's actually a film. There's a professional observatory that we have there. So anyway. Wonderful. So she was just mentioning that there is a professional observatory that was talking about the star in the east, and there's good reason to believe there was a star at the time of the Magi. So there's actually a film, a documentary of sorts called The Star of Bethlehem. It actually goes over this, and it speaks of retrograde motion, so explaining as to why the star would have stayed where it was in place. Uh, over Bethlehem. Um, and also, according to this theory, when they go back and look at the dates for Herod and figure out the star, there is a conjunction of Jupiter and Venus. So it would have been something that was really um, eye-catching at that time. So there is, that's, that's one way of engaging it, looking through uh, kind of astronomical data. There's also other theories like Augustine who simply says the star was an angel. So, um, and of course, if you're origin, the stars are moved by the angels, so everyone wins. <laughs> Yes. What year do they speculate Jesus was born? Generally, 4 BC is the day you, or the, the year rather you commonly hear. He was asking when Jesus is born. It's believed 4 BC, and the date for his death anywhere around 30 AD. Yeah. Yes.
Yes, yeah, so a common interpretation. So the Greek word that's used in Matthew's gospel when it says the Magi come is not the word that's used for a baby. It's the one that's used for a toddler. So how this is typically rendered is that the Holy Family went there for the census, and then they must have stayed there. Joseph found work, and they were in Bethlehem um, until Jesus was about two years old, at, at which point the Magi would take them a while to kind of make their way from uh, Babylonia, and by the time they showed up, Christ was about two, and then, of course, they're warned by Herod to go back in a dream, and then the Holy Family moves from Bethlehem down to Egypt, where it stays. So that's, that's the usual interpretation of that. Yes? So she's asking, was he born in a cave? Was he born in a stable? And none of his relatives would take him in. Have you heard that story? So yes, I've heard both theories. And it could be that it was, again, not a case of either or, but both and. That perhaps there is a stable that was, or a cave rather, I should say, that was being used as a stable. Um, another theory that actually has been aired recently is that he, the stable was the very bottom of the house. So it would have been like the lower, I don't know, dungeon's not a good word, but Basically, everyone's upstairs feasting and partying. It was down below that the animals were kept, and maybe like that's where he was. Again, showing he's born to the humble of heart in the lowest part of the house. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of that is speculation, and a lot of times it could be a case of both and. But. Well, great. Thank you guys so much for your attention. Thank you for joining us for today's Principles Live Lecture. Principles is made possible by our President's Council, our Principal Society, and all of our benefactors who share with the wider world the truths of wisdom and knowledge that students receive here at Christendom College. And if you're not yet a Principal Society member, please consider joining us and making this content free for others. Thank you so much and God bless you.